rest of us. I'm going to finish chapter 1 of John today. I didn't have to read R.C. Sproul's commentary on this passage today that we're dealing with because what I dealt with in three sermons, he dealt with in one. R.C., come on, man. I need more help here. (laughs) Either way, this is what we've got. All right, chapter 1, verse 43 through 51. Hear the word of our God. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and of Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts this morning that indeed we may see Jesus high and lifted up, that we might see his incredible majesty and supremacy, that believing in his supremacy we might see his sufficiency. So open our eyes to the hope to which we have been called in Christ. Open our eyes to the immeasurable greatness of his power to work in and for us who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. We ask this for his glory and for our good. Amen. <clears throat> I don't know if this is what happens now, um, but you know, rock stations during certain holiday weekends like to have their countdown and their fans call in and vote for their favorite songs. And at least when I was uh, a teenager and uh, in, in my early 20s, <clears throat> I would still listen to these. And it was almost inevitable that the number one song was... It was not Hotel California. (laughs) It was Stairway to Heaven. I don't know why. It's not even Led Zeppelin's best song. By far, I think, in my little opinion anyway. But for some reason, it has captured the hearts and minds of so many people, that little song. Now, I'm not going to act like one of those, uh, you know, rock seminars that were really popular in the 80s and kind of find the occult references in the song, you know, the bustle in her head or any of that kind of stuff. But really, I want you to, to see and think about that particular song in light of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was established because they wanted to ascend up to heaven. 
They built a ziggurat, a stairway, so to speak, that would reach into the sky with the the intention of, in a sense, gaining a name for themselves, gaining glory for themselves, pulling down by themselves, a sense, the blessings of heaven. And there's something appealing about that to fallen humanity. There's something about the pride of fallen people that wants to reach up or climb up and pull blessings down. There's something about our pride that does not want to receive blessings, but gain blessings. That's, I think, what really strikes the core with so many people about stairway to heaven. She's climbing the stairway to heaven, just like the Tower of Babel. She's going up. That appeals to fallen people, this idea. Then there's another popular song from that same era that I'm reminded of that's in a similar sort of vein. The Doobie Brothers did a cover tune. Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right. And you know, when I was a teenager, that kind of a cool riff going to it, and it just sounded right and all this. But just think about it, though. He's all right. (laughs) And I think it really fits into that, you know, 60s, 70s sort of idea of, of, you know, we're looking for the latest guru. Jesus is okay to give me information that I need. He's, he's, a, he's a good guru, but it really isn't about the reality, the, the, the idea that Jesus is a Savior that I desperately need. So he's more than just all right with me. I think this, these, these two songs, I think, point us in a direction, so to speak, of <clears throat> the fact of that, that often people will seek a Jesus that doesn't really exist. They've got some preconceptions of what they need. They need a guru. They need some wisdom. And that is the Jesus that they seek. The big idea this morning is that the Jesus we find is greater than the one that we seek. We're going to see, even back then, this is not a 1960s and 70s problem. This is a humanity problem. And even amongst the early disciples, they struggled with this. They sought a particular Jesus, and the one they found isn't necessarily the one that they sought. In fact, he's greater. And so that leads me to my first thing that I want us to think about this morning, and that is to leave behind your preconceptions of Jesus. Let's look at the text for a little bit here. It starts off with the next day, and Jesus is supplied. The Greek has no pronoun for the subject, or no noun for the subject. It just kind of leaves it vacant there. And so, you know, someone like D.A. Carson has said that he believes on the basis of what happens right before this, that he's speaking about Andrew. And that Andrew is the one who decides to go into Galilee. That Andrew is the one that goes and finds Philip. But I wrestle with that. Because the thing that he says to Philip when he finds him is, follow me. doesn't sound like what Andrew would be saying. That sounds like what Jesus would be saying. So I think the ESV makes a good call by inserting Jesus there to clarify things for us. 
Jesus on the, far, on the east side of, of the Jordan has decided that it's now time for him to bring his ministry uh, back toward Galilee. That's what's going on here. Bethsaida is, most, is one of the entry points uh, into the region called Galilee uh, from the east. So it makes sense that they're going through there. And so it makes sense that Jesus finds Philip there. Okay, <coughs> He may have already known of Philip. He may have already had experience with Philip. We're not exactly sure, but he goes and he finds him and he issues that call, follow me. And last week we talked a little bit about how that can be used in a very general sense. Uh, you know, I'm following the truck. Doesn't mean I'm purposely following the truck. It just means that the truck is ahead of me and going in the same direction I'm going. But it can also mean that idea of fall, to follow as in to enter into that relationship of a, a, a disciple to a rabbi. And what's interesting is that typically what happened in particular, uh, for the Jews in particular was that disciples sought a rabbi. Rabbis didn't seek disciples. It's almost like, you know, you, you did your thing, and if you taught well, then people would want to come alongside and learn from you. <clears throat> it wasn't like you went around saying, hey, do you, do you want to be my disciple? But here is Jesus, turning everything upside down yet again. He finds Philip and says, follow me. Enter into this discipleship relationship with me. This is the only time really we find this in John's Gospel. We see it, the call of the, the disciples in the other Gospels, but this is the one where we find Jesus singling out an individual and saying, come and follow me. That idea of finding, that's actually a key word in this first part because we're going to see Jesus finds Philip and then Philip finds Nathaniel. The first thing that Philip does as a brand new disciple of this Jesus guy, as he goes and he finds one of his friends. So again, we see that, that pattern we, we mentioned last week of the gospel working through the relational pathways that already exist. Philip doesn't go and find some stranger. Philip goes and finds his friend. Okay? Just as uh, last week we talked about, you know, in John's gospel, every time we see Andrew, uh, you know, Andrew's bringing someone to meet Jesus. Okay, whenever we see Philip in John's gospel, we see a guy who's probably, I would say, not the brightest bulb. He's not all that smart. Okay, uh, you know, when Nathaniel begins to bring up some questions, we're going to see that all he can do is say, just, just come and see for yourself. He doesn't have answers himself, ultimately. But, you know, he's willing to risk out there. And so, you know, I, th I look at Philip and I go, hey, there's hope for me. There's hope for us. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to have it all figured out for Jesus to use us. Because Jesus is about to use Philip in the life of Nathaniel, and he's going to use Jesus, uh, sorry, Philip in the life of other people. So, you know... We don't have to have PhDs in theology. We don't have to win the, the sword drill in Sunday school or whatever kind of criteria you might have to be useful to Jesus. Because humble Philip was used 
by Jesus. Jesus uses all kinds of people. Okay? So, <clears throat> Philip goes, he finds Nathaniel, and he says this, that we have found, once again that word, we have found, so he's probably talking about, you know, Andrew and Simon, who's now called Peter, presumably John, okay? We have found the one of whom, uh, of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And so he's, he's trying to tell Nathaniel that these promises, these hopes that were established by things like Deuteronomy 18, this prophet that would come after Moses that everyone was supposed to listen to, uh, the, the, the servant songs of Isaiah, all of this, uh, you know, we, we found the guy. You know, we were waiting for this guy, and we found him. You need to go see this. But then he makes a mistake. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Now, from everyone's perspective, he was the son of Joseph. Joseph essentially adopted him <clears throat> to be his, his son. He took care of him. He raised him. And so, you know, uh, for Jews, you were known by whom you were related to. And so he was known as the son of Joseph. That's not a problem for us. Not a problem for me. But the words Jesus of Nazareth were a problem for Nathaniel. Because Nathaniel apparently knew a little bit about the scriptures, and he knows that Nazareth. Nothing's supposed to come out of Nazareth. You're talking about the, you know, the, the guy that Moses wrote about, the guy that the prophets wrote about, and I don't recall them ever mentioning Nazareth. Not only is sort of that, that biblical skepticism that he has, but there's probably also you know, a, a little bit of you know, tribal skepticism there. Most Jews who lived around Jerusalem didn't look well upon those in Galilee, because you know, them, there's Gentiles up there in them hills. And so those people from Galilee, we're not so sure about them. But you know what? Everyone has to look down on somebody. And it sounds like that even the people of Galilee, of which uh, Nathaniel would be a member since he's here in, in Bethsaida, even they look down on somebody. And they look down on Nazareth. Man, ain't nothing good going to come out of Nazareth. That is a podunk kind of town. And I remember, you know, no one thinks Winter Haven is a special place to live. I don't think. Um, <clears throat> Winter Haven is really unusual, and I, you know, I, I lived there for over about a decade. It's, it's not really where I would choose to have been unless God had called me to be there, you know? But even living in Winter Haven, you know that there's some place worse right next door. <coughs> Juanita, Florida. You've never heard of Juanita, Florida, and it's really probably a very good thing for you that you've never heard of Juanita, Florida. But I always laugh because there, there are sometimes I would take this one route to avoid the main traffic in Winter Haven. I know, avoiding the traffic in Winter Haven. That's how impatient I am. <laughs> and you drive by the Juanita Hilton. It's a dump. It's a flop house. It's where people, of, uh, women of ill repute go and hang out to receive their customers. The Hilton. 
That's the, that's the main drag of Juanita. There's always someplace lower on the totem pole, so to speak, than you. And so for Nathaniel, that was Nazareth. There's just no way that the Messiah is coming out of Nazareth. Okay? But we see in the midst of this that the disciples recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And so they know their Scriptures enough, maybe not well enough yet, but they're they're tying what Jesus is doing in with the promises found in the Old Testament. They're not recognizing this as some weird new religion. They're trying, they're recognizing this as the fulfillment of what was found in the Old Testament. That's their intention. That's what they see. And that's exactly what it is. But Nathaniel, Nathaniel is skeptical. It probably didn't stop with the can anything good come out of Nazareth comment. I'm sure it continued even beyond there. He has questions. He has concerns. He has preconceptions about this whole deal. All of us do. Even if we grew up in the church, we we often have some preconceptions about who Jesus is. Some things that we've sort of tacked on, perhaps, to what the Bible says. And we may have tacked them on because, uh, you know, of our ignorance. We may have tacked them on because someone we respected, maybe some pastor, erroneously taught us these things. But sometimes we can have some false views and expectations of who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. And Nathaniel had some of these things. And so Philip, you know, okay, Nathaniel's probably smarter than me. Just come and see. This is his invitation. It beckons to us as well to leave our preconceptions, to leave the Jesus of our understanding behind. There's an invitation that's common in Scripture. Psalm 34, for instance, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. In other words, don't just know by hearing about it, but taste and see, have first-hand experiential knowledge of this. As it says in the second part of that verse in Psalm 34, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so what Philip is doing is saying, come, don't just listen to me. Don't just accept or dismiss Jesus by what I say. Come and gain firsthand knowledge of him yourself. It's similar to what Jonathan Edwards said in one of his famous little things is that we, if we study the chemical formula for honey, we know that it's sweet, but we are invited to, to taste it and to know its sweetness, not in our minds, but on our tongues, and therefore our hearts. We are to come to Christ that we might see not just His beauty or His excellence with our minds, but that we might experience His perfections ourselves. Come and see. Gain firsthand knowledge of this Jesus. And essentially, here, it's setting up the rest of the Gospel of John. Because he's going to show us how great Jesus is. How astounding Jesus is. And so the Jesus of our imagination is not big enough to encompass the real Jesus that we will discover if we're patient. Secondly, Jesus changes our minds about who he is. It's not that we change our minds, but essentially Jesus changes our minds about who he is. 
And there's a shift in this text that goes away from the finding to now the seeing. It's introduced by that idea, you know, come and see. And now that word see is just all over the rest of this text. Sometimes it's in the the guise of behold, but it's the same verb, to, to see. Jesus sees Nathanael coming, and Jesus says, look or see, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, this is an Israelite who is like Israel, not Jacob. That Jacob guy that we're going to talk about a little bit later, because uh, you know, his, what he saw <coughs> in his dreams <coughs> at Bethel, when he re-entered the promised land after being away for so many years, he didn't just bring a, a, two wives, uh, some nursemaids, and a bunch of kids with him. He wrestled with God. And God gave him a new name to replace the old name, Jacob, one who grasped the heels, the supplanter. And Jacob was a very tricky guy. You know, he's like the hobbits. He's tricksy. Okay? He's tricksy and false. Okay? You know, he deceived, he tricked his brother out of, the, out of the birthright. He lied to his dad, all these things. In the, in the renaming, as, as he enters into the promised land again after his time in exile uh, in, in the, the tents of his uh, brother in law, Laban, he doesn't just get a new name, but he, he gets a new identity. And it's not supposed to be one who's false and tricksy. And so, in a sense, Jesus is saying there is an Israelite with integrity. There's no tricksiness to him. There's no falseness to him. He's not trying to pull one over on you at every conceivable moment like his, you know, Jacob would before he returned. The flip side of that is probably that Nathaniel was known as someone who was a little abrasive. <laughs> you know? A little blunt, to the point, and sometimes that annoys people. But the Psalms, particularly in Psalm 32, encourage this idea of um, integrity and truthfulness in speech. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And Nathaniel, whatever else his sins were, that was not one of them. He was truthful. He was honest, according to the testimony of Jesus. Now, if you were Nathaniel, what's the one thing at that moment you would want to know? How do you know who I am? How could you have figured this out about me? In other words, I don't know who you are. It's a legitimate question. How is it that Jesus could say these things about him? And it points to this reality that all of us have to reckon with, I think, <clears throat> that, we, I mean, that we don't reckon with this, is that before we know Jesus, Jesus knows us. Not just like he would be able to see us on the street and say, oh, that's Steve Cavallaro. But he knows, or he knew, who I was. What I was about. What I struggled with. All those things that you know we kind of hide from everybody else. He knows. 
The good, the bad, the ugly, the weird, whatever it is, He knows. Before we know Him, He knows us inside and out. Let's get back to what's going on here. Because Jesus says, before I saw you, under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, that doesn't sound very impressive, uh, does it? I mean, I saw you under the fig tree. But there's something significant that really strikes a chord with Nathaniel that we won't get. And it's only, it, it is meant to strike a chord particularly with Nathaniel. What, why the significance of that is really, in a sense, obscured from us. I had one of those very un-Presbyterian Presbyterian-like moments way back when I was uh, a young Christian in New Hampshire. Um, I was at a prayer meeting with a bunch of friends, and there was this new guy that was there that I hadn't met before. I never saw ever again. But he was with us, and we were praying. And um, while we were, we were praying, one of my friends I'd known for a while had been praying and, and making some requests of God. And I felt something, some, you know, like the word repent kept coming to my mind. And I had no idea, you know, kind of. So after we're done praying, and, and I, that was a period after college, I was looking for a job after college, and this guy that I'd never met before said, Steve, while you were praying, God told me. Now, of course, you know, how many of you are going to be excited to hear that? You're probably thinking, this guy's a Fruit Loop. And what he said to me, I think, was just spot on. He said, you know what, you're waiting for God to do something, and God is waiting for you to act. And, you know, essentially, it, that bore out. Okay? I, I don't know how that fits into all of the things about you know, the sign gifts and all that jazz. I'm just saying what I experienced. Okay? Don't call Presbytery on me. Right, Ed? <laughs> you got my back, right, Ed? Okay. <clears throat> anyway. So I felt emboldened in that moment. And I said, you know, Bill, while you were praying, God was telling me, Repent. And I didn't know exactly what that was about, but Bill knew. Because his countenance changed immediately. He knew exactly what he was to repent of. It was not, huh, let me think about this. He knew. And that's essentially what's going on here. There's, there's something that, you know, I don't know what exactly all of this meant, but Nathaniel knew. And it struck him to the heart in a profound way. Now, this idea of being under the fig tree, sometimes fig trees were a symbol of prosperity. I'm not exactly sure why it was a symbol of prosperity, probably because it produced money, okay? But it was also seen as a place of meditation, and so one possible thing that this is, is that he was praying about Messiah. And that may be what really struck the chord, but that's a guess. We don't know for certain, okay? But... Nathaniel, the skeptic, the man who says nothing good can come from Nazareth, suddenly blurts out, Rabbi, you're the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He does a 180 very quickly. He turns on a dime, and he who is skeptical is now effusing with praise for this person, Jesus, whom he has just met and about whom he knows absolutely nothing except what has been spoken to him in the last few minutes. 
on the one hand, he mentions that Jesus is a teacher, rabbi. Probably means that, okay, now I'm ready to follow you. I'm ready to attach myself to you because you're something special. And so there's that aspect of I'm willing to submit to your teaching. But it's not just that. He says, you are the son of God. And now we're not sure exactly what he meant by that. Okay. You, you can look at, because Psalm 2 was originally written for the installation of kings in Israel. Okay? Now, it's a messianic psalm, but its original intention was the installation of kings in Israel. And so there was sort of this common idea that you know, the king of Israel was essentially adopted by God. That's not, of course, the case in Jesus. Okay? He is the eternal son. But <clears throat> that might be what Nathaniel is thinking, but we recognize in this idea that if, if he is the Son of God, then, then he is to be worshipped. And so what he's saying here is incredibly profound. Not only that, but he calls him the King of Israel. If you're an Israelite and someone is the King of Israel, then what is your relationship with him? It is one of submission, it is one of obedience, it is one of reverence. It is... It is even greater than if you were to meet the president. And we'll pick a president you like, whomever that is. You know, you would be excited to meet the president. You would have, be filled with a sense of awe, a sense of reverence, and a, wow, I get to shake his hand. Nathaniel is in a sense confessing his need to submit to Jesus, not just as a teacher, but as somebody far greater than a teacher. And there's a sense in which you kind of almost want to press this little button here. You know, because here we have skeptical Nathaniel, who's suddenly believing, apparently. That was easy. You know? And Jesus says, do you already believe? Already? And so in a sense, now Jesus is playing the skeptic about the sincerity and the depth of this newfound belief that Nathaniel has. A lot of people had that suspicion. What's interesting to me is that when Jesus was tried and executed, we find these things popping up. When we read it from Matthew 27, what did the Roman soldiers do? Oh, they beat him, spit upon him, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! They mocked him in light of the title that Nathaniel has just said. You also had all the scoffers who were around the, the cross as he's dying, uh, saying similar sorts of things, as well as the priests. And the priests invoke both Son of God and King of Israel as they mock him. Is God going to save you now? And so these words, these terms that Nathaniel means with some level of faith and a level of endearment are going to be turned and twisted against Jesus to be used to mock him because they have the wrong idea of who he is. And they don't recognize that the king will suffer before 
He reigns. But he will. The King of Israel is the eternal Son who suffers. And so, Nathaniel is not the only one who is called to submit and to worship. We too are called to submit and to worship. But we hopefully worship with a greater understanding of who Jesus is than Nathaniel had at that moment. That we worship and submit with the sense of who Nathaniel knew Jesus to be after the resurrection. Because that's really what happens. The, the disciples struggle with who Jesus is until the resurrection. Then all, all those things kind of fall in place and go, of course, because now they have the Holy Spirit. Of course it all makes sense. The Spirit helped them understand all of it. Quickly, who's Nathaniel? He seems to be called into uh, discipleship with Jesus here. This is the only gospel that mentions Nathaniel. Augustine thought that there was no way in the world that Nathaniel could be an apostle because he's too smart. He's you know, kind of taking 1 Corinthians 1, not many of you were noble, not many of you were wise. He's thinking that instead of not many, not any, apparently, that no one who's smart who you know, could ever be an apostle. Probably a better way of looking at this is there's a name that, that you find in the Synoptic Gospels. Yeah, Synoptic. Can't even say that today, this morning. The other three Gospels. Bartholomew. Now, Bartholomew is not a name. We treat it like one now. I mean, we call people Bartholomew. But it means the son of Thelolio. Okay, it's, it's, just, it's referring to whose son he is. That's all that is. And so many people believe that Bartholomew, his real name is Nathaniel. And that sounds like a reasonable uh, assumption on my part. So I'm going with Bartholomew. Okay, anyway, that was a little semi-little rabbit trail. <clears throat> but Nathaniel here, or Bartholomew, whomever he is, he's on the right track, but he's not fully there yet. And he won't be, as I said, until the resurrection. And that points us to the reality that even we, on this side of the resurrection, progressively understand the truth about Jesus. We don't get it all at once in a download. Okay? We progressively understand who he is. But the call for us is to trust and to love that which Jesus reveals about himself. And as we go through this Gospel of John, he's going to reveal a lot about himself. And so what we need to do is, is love and trust who he is, how he reveals himself to us in the weeks and months to come. So Jesus reveals himself to those who seek him so they will follow him. Third point this morning is that the Son of Man is the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus challenges Nathanael very quickly about how quickly he believed and the basis for that belief. And he speaks to them all because the you is not singular, the you is plural. He says, you will see greater things than these. What follows in John's Gospel is the book of signs and the book of glory. They're going to see far greater things than this, I saw you under the fig tree. Okay. 
this is the first use of the term Son of Man in this particular gospel. And it's going to be increasingly fleshed out. He's going to add all these things to this idea of the Son of Man. But for our initial understanding of the Son of Man, we have to go to Daniel 7. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, in the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom." that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom shall, uh, his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so in Daniel, you have this vision, a heavenly vision of one like a son of man, who arrives, who receives power and authority over everything, He's going to bring an end to the suffering of God's people. He is, in a sense, the eschatological judge who will bring the judgment of God against the unfaithful nations of men. That's who the Son of Man is. In Acts chapter 7, just before Stephen is stoned, he says something that that basically seals the deal for his, his death because it, it incites uh, the Jews. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now in that case, the Son of Man is standing to intercede on his behalf. But what, what basically what Stephen is saying is, Daniel 7 has come to pass. The Son of Man is there in the present presence of the Ancient of Days. Just as we see from Revelation chapter 5, when all, all of this discussion of the Lamb of God, you know, the, the, the line of the tribe of Juba, Judah, who actually looks like a lamb that was slain, that's all Daniel 7. Okay? So Jesus is going to talk a lot about who this Son of Man is in His earthly ministry that is going to um, surprise the disciples and may surprise us as well. Again, this idea, He says, you will see heaven opened. Just like Daniel, and as John would later see it, just as Stephen would later, you will receive a vision. And this vision is going to be like the one that Jacob saw while he was sleeping near Bethel when he was fleeing from, for his life from his brother. And so Jesus alludes to this, this event in the life of, of Jacob where he sees, in a sense, the stairway to heaven. He sees the ziggurat, or the ladder of God, and he sees angels ascending and descending upon this thing, and he sees God himself at the top of the ladder, and he's on the bottom of the ladder. And God is bringing blessings down upon Jacob. And Jesus says that the ladder, the stairway, the ziggurat that he saw was the Son of Man, and you too will see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Not just for you, Israel, but as we heard 
read about back in Genesis about this event. It was all the families, all the families of the world will be blessed. Jesus as the, the as Jacob's ladder is going to bring, bring blessings not just to the nation of Israel, but to all who call upon his name, all who receive him, regardless of their ethnic background. Jew, Gentile, all. And so Jesus is Jacob's ladder. But it's important for us to recognize that it is the angels, it is not people, who ascend and descend. There is a pernicious sort of thing that shows up when we look at our songs. And it's not just Stairway to Heaven. There's a hymn. It's a bad hymn. I don't think it's in our hymnal. I didn't look. I didn't want to know. Okay? But, you know, I'm climbing Jacob's ladder. Are you an angel? You're not climbing Jacob's ladder. In fact, Bruce Springsteen, I think that's, uh, I put it on our Facebook page, and that's the song, I think, I think he's playing the old hymn, Jacob's Ladder. And we're climbing Jacob's Ladder. Huey Lewis in the news. They've got a song, Jacob's Ladder. It's not about the angels you know, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Once again, it's about climbing Jacob's Ladder. It's about self-salvation. We don't believe in our capacity to save ourselves, to deliver ourselves. We can't climb the stairway. I've been up some of those pyramids in Mexico. I don't want to climb that stairway. I'm afraid to look down. I don't like heights. But that's what we're not meant to climb and pull blessings down. We're meant to receive them as they come through Christ alone, by faith alone. Ephesians 1 talks about how every spiritual blessing has been given to us in Christ. Not because you were a good boy today. It speaks about the fact that the Son of Man is Savior as well as Lord. He's the dispenser of salvation, the dispenser of God's blessings. They're not, it's not something that we earn or deserve, but are given to us graciously. He's the eschatological ruler, and yet he is the one who's going to remove the sin barrier that stands between heaven and earth as our Savior. It's as if there's a pipe of water going from one place to another, but the water never arrives because it's clogged. And Jesus is going to be the one who takes out the clog so that the fresh, gracious living water is able to be given to the people in that place. So he isn't a mere teacher. He isn't a guru. He's not a political leader like Nathaniel probably thought. <clears throat> but he's the one who brings heaven down. So the real Jesus is far greater than the Jesus we sought. He is a Jesus worth our love, worth our trust, worth our worship. So part of our spiritual blindness outside of Christ is that we think we only need a teacher. Or we only think we need this guru to sort of enlighten us like the Buddha. We seek someone who kind of fits that bill. And there are many who seek Jesus looking only for the great teacher to instruct them. What they find instead is a king to whom they must submit. A god they must worship. 
and a Savior who delivers them from their sin, which enslaves and blinds them. And so I ask you this morning, are you still clinging to the Jesus of your own understanding, or are you loving and trusting the Jesus who reveals himself in Scripture for our benefit? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you changed the minds of so many people. That you move them beyond their preconceptions, the falsehoods they, they have, that they might know the real Jesus. So that they might love, worship, honor, serve the real Jesus. So, Father, as we continue through this Gospel of John, I ask that you continue to make Jesus more fully known to us, that we might grow in our faith, grow in our love, grow in our hope, and become more of the people that you have redeemed us and called us and sanctify us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.